0: a cool guest for episode six of the Tartar Project. What's up? Phil Toronto here again in the hot seat. Mic in front of me turned on, hopefully. Double checked. Yep, it's on. That's great. Very key for the intro. Today we have a lovely gentleman by the name of Chris Zaru. He is an up and coming and already established at the same time music mogul Did not expect to go into that industry. He used a phenomenal amount of self-awareness to identify the fact that he wasn't going to be the professional soccer player that he initially set out to be when he he went into college. Um, He had to forge his own path because he had no inroads into the music biz. And you might be familiar with uh, some of the bigger acts that he does manage, uh, logic being one of them pretty incredible story. Um, I'll I'll let Chris give you the full rundown, but just listening to how driven that he's been throughout the years and how he's always faced down opportunities and and not shied away from the scary stuff that he he didn't know how to do. It's been key to his success and I guess I'll just stop talking at this point and, and let Chris tell his story because it's it's a really fun episode and we have some really good tidbits in there for building a brand. Episode six of the Tartar Project. Thank you so much for coming back and listening. I'm super excited about our guest today. My buddy, Chris Thank you for having me, dude. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Chris is an amazing entrepreneur. I know that I sound like a broken record saying that about my guests, but it's it's true. And I'm truly honored to have anyone and everyone on that has come on. But his story is really, really incredible. He's overcome some obstacles. He's had to reinvent himself a couple of times throughout his career, and he's only going to get bigger and bigger. You may know him as Logic's manager, but he does so much more than that. He has a budding empire, uh, across a few <laughs> different pieces of the music industry. And I would say this behind your back too. It's not just because I'm staring at you uh, sitting across from a microphone, but I, I definitely that. definitely feel that. Um, and we'll we'll just dive right in. I, where'd you grow up?
1: Long Island, New York. Beautiful. Um, born and raised my whole life. Both my parents are from there. Um, I love New York. I love Long Island. I think it's a really special place, especially where, where I grew up. I grew up probably... 10 minutes outside of Queens, kind of in the center of the island. And, and you know, it was just, I had a amazing childhood. There's some of the best beaches in the world. Um, I was, you know, when I when I was old enough and, and, and wanted to kind of venture off into Manhattan, I was always a 35-minute train ride away. Um, so me and, and friends would, would, you know, have some weekends in Manhattan, which was just amazing. And um, and then ultimately, I you know fell in love with Manhattan. So I've been living in the city for the past five years. Amazing. Yeah.
0: And growing up, did you did you have the entrepreneurial bug at all? What what did it look like? Did you have summer jobs? What
1: you, you know? What I I I never did. I always worked. I think it was important to my parents to 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 kind of have have me work. And at, definitely at a young age, even in college, uh, my freshman year, I was fortunate enough to get a, a scholarship at, to play Division One soccer. And my, my parents made me work while I was playing soccer, which going to school is a hard enough full-time job as it is. And then playing, you know, Division one sport on top of it, having a job, it was a lot. Um, it's but three I, jobs. I'm grateful for it because I think it it taught me a lot about work ethic. And, and um, yeah, looking back at the time, it was, granted, I, I was in the gym, I was... I checked people into the gym at the school, so I sat there for, you know, five, six hours. It was easy. It's so, still, it, it, it takes some headspace. Yeah, because you have to schedule it out and say, okay, I have to be there.
0: And that um, that was probably your first foray into real-time management, which
1: probably 100%, 100%. helps today. 100%.
0: Considering you still, due to science reasons, can't be in two places at once, unfortunately. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so any, any job jump out at you in particular as, as either the worst or the best growing up before you got to college or even shortly after college?
1: That's a good question. Um, my uncle works in construction. He has his own construction business. So there was a a couple of summers where I did that and definitely not for me, the manual labor thing. Um, I think I learned a lot from it and I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to do, I want to do this. And again, I was doing a lot of the, the kind of grunt work and picking up garbage pails and lugging them to the dumpster. And, um, yeah, I did that probably three different summers to make, to make money when I was on break from, from high school and I think middle school even is probably when I started eighth grade. Uh Um, that wasn't the best experience. I worked retail, which might actually be worse. <laughs> um, I worked from my experience. I worked, um, it, it rule clothing, which was, I think, owned at the time by Amber Crombie and Fitch. It mm-hmm. was like a marketed towards, I guess, a, a little bit of an older demographic. Um, I did that at Roseville Field Mall in Long Island when I was in college. Actually, over the Christmas break is when I did that job um, again. Because my parents are like, "Hey, you're home for 40 days. Get go to work." Um, Got to do so, it. So, so yeah, I worked there. Um, that was probably the last real job I had. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, because I don't think what I'm doing now is a, is a real job. I'm I super totally lucky feel the same way. Fortunate and grateful.
0: Every day you wake up, Every it's day.
1: insane. It's nuts. It's nuts.
0: I, um, I'm um, i actually going to use this as an opportunity to talk about my worst manual labor job Please. because it was so impactful on how not manual labor-y mm-hmm. I am. Um, a friend of mine, and it was supposed to be this cushy setup, his neighbor owned a warehouse in New Jersey and only dealt with radiators for cars. That's it. And so he's comes to me, he's saying, hey man, gonna get paid great money, $20 an hour, go every day, it's a perfect summer job. I was like, oh, this is, sounds great, $20 an hour, like, great, buy some parts from my car, it's fantastic. Get there, we drove separately, thankfully. Got there, and I'm, I'm picking and packing from shelves these heavy-ass radiators, and then a container comes in, 40-foot container, got to unload it with, uh, I think the guy's name was Jim, and he was, he was a little bit rude, um, not very helpful, not accommodating for the first day on the job. He uh, didn't wear deodorant. Mm. He had holes in his shorts and didn't wear underwear. And just probably around hour six at the end of the day, I said to my friend and the guy that owned the place was like, I'm so sorry, but this is not for me. I'm out. And I got to go home. Six hours you lasted. Six hours. And mind you, in between that, there was 30 minutes where the guy was gracious enough to order me and my friend pizza, brought us into the air-conditioned office, had a nice air-conditioned lunch, and still couldn't have yeah. it. Soft. Very, I very soft. I lasted three summers. So. That, yeah, that's that's just a testament I deserve, to you.
1: I deserve some credit there.
0: Uh, 100%. Anyway... That's just a picture of, of my soft upbringing. But at Dairy Queen, I excelled. I oh, you worked at for, Dairy Queen? Yeah. Wow. That's why I don't have a sweet tooth because wow. I spent too much time eating my mistakes. I love that. Because you don't throw them out. Yeah.
1: You can throw them out. No,
0: you can't throw them out. That's wasteful. It's true. Silly. Um, anyway, sorry. Um, fast forward. You're in college. Mm-hmm. You think you're taking a very different life path because you were rec- recruited for Division <laughs> One Soccer. You're training. You're trying to juggle work, schoolwork, everything, but you're training because you have a mission.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, super ambitiously at the time, I thought I was gonna become a professional soccer player. Um, that was my goal. I was said, okay, you know, I tried to put some sort of a plan, mission in place. If I can play Division One and I can, you know, compete at that level. You know, at some point when I graduated or possibly earlier, I would take the leap and, and try and play at, at the higher level, which would be professional. I think I had a reality check when I when I got to Division I. It was a completely different pace and <clears throat> level of game and competition than I played. And I was on, you know, when I was in high school, I was on some really competitive teams. Um, very quickly, I probably came to, to terms that I wasn't good enough. And I think what helped me do that, I, I was, there was older players in the team, whether it was juniors or seniors, that I had no problem saying, okay, that, that, that's a better player than me. But I was also trying to be realistic about it and said, okay, I got two years to catch up to where he's at. And I would watch them go and try and play beyond college. When they went and graduated, you follow them on social media, you keep in touch with people, with, with teammates, And they, a lot of them struggled, really struggled. And I'm like, well, they're better than me and they're struggling. And I kind of made the decision at that time. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that with my life and become a journeyman and jump jump around and play until I'm probably 30 years old and and ultimately have to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life at that point. Um, So I made the really tough decision to just kind of quit cold turkey and said, this isn't what I'm going to do anymore. I need to figure something else out and and kind of pivoted my life. I was, it wasn't easy. I was definitely lost for a little bit. It was, it was my, so, after my sophomore season, I made that decision. I transferred schools in between. Um, yeah. And it was really tough at that time. Cause if you could imagine, since I was probably 15 years old, I had this goal and I worked towards it every single day um, and dedicated my life to it pretty much. So, Um. yeah, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next was was kind of scary at the time. Definitely. What
0: school did you wind up at? You said you transferred.
1: I actually, I had a kind of wild college journey. I, I ended up going to four different colleges in four years and graduated what that was at the time, it was college wasn't for me. The second that I stopped playing soccer, I realized that's the only reason I went to school. And I hated it. Mm-hmm. I've hated school my whole life. I had major, major issues with it. Um, and I kept bouncing around because I was like, okay, I got to find the right school for me. It just didn't exist. It wasn't, there was no... Um, and again, I don't think I was self-aware enough at the time that I realized now I, it was evident I shouldn't have... I don't think I should have went to college. Um, beyond soccer. There was really no reason for me to be there. Um, and I had a really tough time with it. So I, I jumped around. I started at Canisius in Buffalo my freshman year, transferred to Adelphi along on Long Island my second year, then went to CW Post. I thought I was going to continue to play, so I transferred there. They were a really good Division Two. I was going to jump down to a Division II team. Ultimately decided after transferring there I wasn't going to play. Jump down to community college because I was trying to figure out what I was going to do and ultimately went back to Adelphi and graduated from there. And I think the reason I I chose Adelphi and went back there, they had a working adult program that because I at that point was running my business and and managing some artists, and it would allow you to take night classes. A lot of them were kind of online, so that's how I was able to balance the both and navigate it uh, probably the last year and a half of my college life, I was, I was running my business. So that, I think that's why I was able to, to graduate.
0: That makes sense. And you had put all the work in, you Mm -hmm. might as well get your piece of paper and cross it off the list. Which is
1: still somewhere in a FedEx box, my diploma in my parents' attic, because I cut it so close. I didn't know if I was going to graduate or not. I found out, I think 48 hours before graduation, so they didn't have my diploma ready, so I had to mail it to me later, which, yeah, it's still in the box.
0: (laughs) That's fun. That'll be a good relic in the future probably. Probably, it could have been. Probably will never take it out. I don't think so. That's fine. You said something interesting, though, where you didn't have the self-awareness to know to not go to school, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, something must have developed in you because it takes an incredible amount of self-awareness to identify the future players that you kind of based the change in your life off of mm-hmm. seeing them struggling and being able to recognize that you were not as good as them. So that that growth is insane.
1: Yeah yes in in I was realistic. I don't know if the word the term is self-aware at that time about recognizing that I wasn't good enough. And and listen, I probably knew I think I knew my whole life school wasn't right for me. I didn't I didn't enjoy it. I I I don't know many people who enjoy school, but for me it was just I felt trapped a lot. I, I kind of fought back at a lot of the silly things. Like, I always thought it was wild that you had to raise your hand and go to the bathroom. Uh, little things like that right. just stuck with me and bothered me since I was in, like, elementary school. Um, like, if I got to go to the bathroom, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. Exactly. Like, I, don't, yeah. I don't need permission. <laughs> <It's> pretty simple. <laughs> and, you know, I think it was also just society a little bit. It's scary. You're going to be a college dropout. Um, definitely my parents were wanted me to graduate. It was super important to them, and I think that's ultimately why I did it. And I remember it came down to my last semester, of my senior year, when I wasn't sure. And I was like, "Listen, I Logic had just signed a Def Jam. I was still in school, and I got you know I, my first larger commission check. And I remember sitting my parents, and I was like, "Listen, if I don't pull this off this semester, I'm I'm done." And I think they finally agreed, like, "Okay, like yeah." So I, I was going to drop out really with one semester left. Um, thankfully it all worked out. I didn't have to do that.
0: With 48 Um, hours notice. Yes.
1: But it's, it's, it's funny because, and the reason I always say I regret it and I don't want to sound like this, you know, but I took out loans. I had to pay back a lot of loans for that. And I wish I didn't have that. I've been fortunate where I could, I paid them off already, but more than anything now, I think there's so many young people kids out there and young people that look up to people that have had some sort of success and try and follow their plan. Okay, what did they do? Let me reverse engineer what they did. And I don't think it's right that you look at certain people and say, okay, they graduated college. I have to do that and go on that path because I don't believe you do, especially if you're taking out loans and going into debt to go to school. It's just, it's absurd. It's just, I I, I don't understand it. It's mind blowing. It's nuts. It's nuts.
0: So we'll we'll rewind slightly. You are fresh off of retiring from your soccer career. How did you decide that music was for you? Was it another passion that you had like soccer that was kind of always there and you figured, you know what, this is a big part of my life. Let's make this a thing. Or how did you kind of stumble into starting that business?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. It was always a big passion in my life. And the way I describe it is, you know, there there's casual music listeners, and then there there was people that, like I was. I always wanted to dive a little bit deeper. So if I liked an artist or liked a band, I would then go on the internet and join you know fan clubs or message boards or blogs. Street team, exactly where you learned everything about that artist. Um, you know, I was like that my whole life. I think me and my older brother would share music. I always enjoyed finding artists before they were well known acts, so I can kind of tell people about it. And I think watching certain things, I realized how it, it stuck with me, again, later in life and why it played a role. One example, like 50 Cent, right? And, and we're similar age, so you, you were familiar with the way he kind of came up in this explosion. I was a, a really big fan of Eminem. So be- and because of that, I was, you know, on the Internet and I was everything I was going on with him, I knew. So I knew when him and Dr. Dre signed 50 Cent before 50 Cent was 50 Cent. Like I used to go into Jamaica, Queens with my friends. We take the train in Jamaica, Queens to buy his mixtapes on the street. Like I was like that much of a music nerd. Super in. And watching kind of 50 Cent have that global domination moment. Being like, wait a second! I was going to Jamaica Queens to buy his mixtapes for five dollars, like, and now he's this massive mega superstar. I knew, yeah. I think that that kind of stuff stuck with me. Um, so music was always a passion, and and when I stopped and wanted to pivot and stop playing soccer, I just knew I wanted to do something that I was passionate about. I was like that my whole life, right? That's why I played soccer. I love the sport. So when I was kind of figuring it out. I landed on music. I was like, okay, how can I work in music? I love music. And doing some research while I was at re- reading online, going to Barnes & Noble, reading music business books, I realized management in particular was the least barrier to entry in my opinion because I didn't have any relationships. I didn't know anybody. I had no relatives, no friends that worked in the business. And the music world and community can be very tight-knit and it's very difficult to break in. So I said, okay, well, if I find talent and I break that artist, that'll be my foot in the door. That's why I think I stumbled into artist management. Amazing. Yeah.
0: And so how did you find your first artist
1: on the Internet? So just because I was a fan. So I knew all of it. It was a really interesting time. You know, this was 2010 to 2012. Where there was these music blogs, where you know, it was generally kids in college who ran them, who had a great ear and eye for talent, and were just passionate—they just wanted to share stuff they found and to spread artists. I was, you know, a fan and. In- Knew all those blogs and websites because I love discovering new artists. So I was like, well, that's easy for me. I'm, I go on these websites every day just looking for new music. Why don't I just reach out to some of the kids that, I, that stand out that I really like? And that's really what I did.
0: What were some of the blogs you remember, Was it like Stereo Gum? Stereo Gum M. was one of them.
1: Hype Machine. Hype Machine was a little bit later. There was a website called This Song Is Sick. There was yeah. a website called Good Music All Day. A lot of those, um, and then what I ended up doing and it really helped me as a new manager, I built a relationship with the kids who are running the the websites and people don't they didn't realize how impactful they were. Even when I was early days of taking, you know, major record label meetings, a lot of the executives look at me and be like, you know, how the hell do you have a video with 250,000 views on it? And I'd be like, yeah, these blogs. And they would be just dumbfounded. They don't understand. Yeah, what do you mean? What? <laughs> and yeah, so it was it was cool. And even to this day, I'm, I'm really close with a lot of the kids who, who ran these websites. Like I said, that world, it was just an amazing, exciting time. There's so many people that I work with in the music business t- today that kind of got their start from that era. We, we refer to it, again, we're nerds. We refer to it as the blog era. And there's a bunch of kids that um, came up. Even like Harrison Remler, who's the COO of my company, who started as my intern six years ago, six and a half years ago. He was in that world, and he was booking kids at his college, and he booked my my artist a couple of times. That's how we got to know each other. Um, and he would just go on those websites and discover talent and reach out and, and try and book him. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. And. When you did first start, after you signed your first artist, did you keep it at one artist or did you have a roster from the get go? Like what was your, your thinking around how you constructed your company for breaking the, into the industry?
1: Yeah. For the longest time, it was two artists. And it that was very it was it, it was intended to be small because I the, ty- the type of manager that I am, I don't feel like I can take on an artist career if I can't give 120 percent. And when I started out, I was still in school and I was working, right? And that's where the retail job came into play. Right. But, you know, so it was, it was Logic and then John Bellion, were the, the two artists I had for the longest time, I managed just them two for six years. Um, and I just, I believed in what we were building. I saw it grow on a daily basis. And then I also, you know, a lot of what I did and what I do today, I just watch. You can learn so much just by sitting back and watching and reverse engineering. And listening. In listening. And I watched a lot of young manager friends of mine have success with an early client. And this business has, a, I think life in general, has a way of, you know, boosting ego when you have some success, especially at a young age. And if you start believing what people say about you or drinking your own Kool-Aid, you can make some really bad business decisions. And I watched some friends do that and think that they were superhuman because everybody was telling them they're superhuman. And then you try to do superhuman things and sign 20 artists and your whole business explodes. Mm -hmm. And I knew I didn't want to make that mistake.
0: And guess what? When it explodes, nobody cares. And nobody's telling you you're the shit anymore. That's it. And they're gone. And you're just looking around. That's it wait a second.
1: Mm -hmm. And it it was, and in particular with Logic and John, it was a really slow build year after year, day after day. And it wasn't sexy. And I think a lot of people want that and need that. And I didn't really care because I believed in what we're building. And I was like, okay, one day we're going to wake up and we're going to be in Madison Square Garden. And there it, it is. It took six years, but we did it right? It didn't happen overnight. Like, And that that's great when that happens for some artists. And um, you know, I just believed in what we were building. I believed in building a fan base, building an audience and taking our time and doing it the right way and never skipping a step was something we always talked about.
0: For sure. How long did you watch Logic and John before you either reached out or, or tried to set up a meeting?
1: Not long at all. I think it was immediate on, on both of them. Both the stories are a little bit different. With Logic, I was on Twitter and again, it was earlier days of Twitter, probably followed 20, 30 people. There was an artist I was managing at the time from Philly, and his DJ was from Maryland. He followed his DJ on Twitter. He tweeted out a YouTube link. And this was before the days where Twitter embedded it beautifully, and the video would pop up, and you could play it. So there was no description. There was no, nothing. It was just a, a YouTube link, a URL. And I was bored, and I clicked it. And it was a video of Logic rapping at the University of Maryland campus a cappella and something just stood out to me i thought it was really special he seemed like he i mean his technical ability i think is what impressed me the most and it seems like he had really worked and honed his craft and um i tried to dive in and find a little bit more he had not really i mean he probably had five or six songs out at the time and it was really difficult to even get a hold of him he didn't really have social media so I found his personal Facebook page and I kind of like private messaged him on Facebook. That's how we started kind of communicating. And with John, it was a mutual friend. One day was like, hey, you got to hear this kid, man. And John's actually from Long Island. He's a little further out, he's out in Ronkonkoma. So I was like, cool. I jumped in my car, jumped to my dad's car and drove out to his house. And John, I literally knocked on his door and he played me a bunch of music in his bedroom. That's where he was making all, all his music. And I was just blown away. I was like, this kid's, you know, a genius. But again, when I when I say I don't want to commit to anyone unless I give 120%, he was looking for a manager, and I actually told him I had just started working with Logic. I was like, listen, I just signed this kid. I'm working. I'm still in school. I don't think I can do it. And I remember... John got a little bit upset at, at that because he was looking for a manager and I was like oh I could help you get a record deal because at the time I started building a network in the business and had some relationships and he was very he knew what he wanted he had a clear vision he was like yo I don't want a record I want a manager and ultimately I was like listen I can't do it right now and then we kept in touch he was going to meet other managers and he would kind of call me or text me for for my insight or advice on who he was meeting with and he was doing a publishing deal at the time, and I recommended a lawyer. I was just trying to help him out. And one night, it was probably 1.30 in the morning, I was up studying for finals my, my senior semester. He called me, and he, I answered the phone. He was like, hey, I want you to manage me. Come over tomorrow. So I just drove out to his house, and he was like, listen. He was like, I've met with everybody. And at the time, he had done several trips to L.A., he went to Nashville. He was meeting managers in New York he was like, you were the only person to kind of be 100% honest with me. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, he's like, you literally told me you couldn't do it because you were trying to be fair to Logic. He was like, "I, I respect that. I want you to manage me. So
0: need you on the team.
1: Yeah. So that's how that came,
0: came to life. That's amazing. Yeah. And so you, how, how long ago is that at this point from today?
1: Logic was probably 2011 and early 2011. John was probably late 2011, early 2012 amazing. Yeah.
0: And while you had these two artists you're juggling what well actually let's let's rewind a little bit because you touched on saying at that point you did have some industry contacts you're starting to break in. Mm-hmm. That wasn't always the case because you did try to break into the industry first through internships. Yes. And I think this story is kind of hilarious yeah. especially given where you're at today. Mm-hmm. You, you did reach out trying to set up internships, but the the common feedback you would get as to why you wouldn't get them, what, uh, what was what was the issue that, that they had with you?
1: The one in particular is the only one I could actually even get an interview at. So I, re- I mean, every major label I reached out to and, um, and was pretty relentless about it because I, again, was trying to break into the business. And it was Def Jam at the time where I actually got an interview. I was a big hip hop head and I was like, this is great. I go in for the interview. I thought it went great. And for an internship, for an internship, didn't hear back, followed up several times was kind of just being a pest. I wanted, you know, at least an answer. And the woman ultimately emailed me and, and she said, you know, they went in a different direction. And I just wanted now. I was like, why? You know, and she said, you don't have enough experience, which I thought was just absurd. It was yeah. An internship. Mind it was, blowing. That's how you're supposed to start your experience. Yeah. And, you know, I had no idea at the time, but. Less than a year later, I think, or about a year, Logic ultimately signed to Def Jam. So I actually partnered with them on him, which was, which was pretty funny. Hey, guys. Um, thanks. Yeah. yeah. So pretty I stupid. still I still have that email, by the way, where she told me I don't have experience. That should be framed, yeah. probably, yeah. at a later date. For, for the new office, we'll put it up. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely.
0: So you're, you're grinding. You have two artists. You're figuring it out because, I mean, that's all you can do since you don't have anybody else in the biz to kind of guide you Mm -hmm. what uh what was the slog like like how did how did you split your time like how did you think about growing your business
1: yeah i think right as things started to really take off i graduated so that was super helpful because like i said i you know i wasn't gonna be able to sustain the both it wasn't it wasn't sustainable to do both like that right after i graduated in may we you know did our first tour in june so um i kind of took school off my plate and I think I stopped working at the time because um, I was able to live off of the commission on the advance from signing the deal for a little bit um, and just went full all in. How I balanced it, you know, I don't know. I don't know how I did it or... You just knew you had to do it. I, you have You have no choice. You're running a business, you're managing these two artists and it's demanding, it's full time. And I'd go out to LA a lot with them. There was a time where... The three of us were kind of living in an apartment out there. The labels will stick new artists in this this Oakwood Apartments is what they're called. It's a terrible, miserable place. Um, and it was a one-bedroom apartment, and me, Logic, and John were living there. And then Logic and always had buddies come out, so it was always four or five of us in a, in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, but I look back fun. on that, and it was <laughs> like, you know, I learned a lot. I was the manager, the assistant, everything at the time because we couldn't afford, they couldn't afford other people around. I would... You know, wake up in the morning, try and catch up on work. you have to take them to sessions and studio sessions, drive them around Separate go pick up one of too, them yeah they're I, two different artists hundred percent. I had a rental car at the time, and I was driving all around l a dropping them off, picking them up um yeah, and it was just me it was before i I knew Harrison I worked with Harrison. so um but i I learned so much at that time, and it was really cool. It was a couple uh i don't know twenty two year old kids trying to
0: just figure out how to fi- break in figure
1: it out, yeah, that's amazing, yeah.
0: And then when when did you start to bring people on to help you scale the business?
1: And that was even a process. It was very slow. Um, you know, I met Harrison. I think I told a little bit about the story. He initially was interning for me at the time. So he was, again, just a music lover, is passionate on the same, you know, blogs and websites looking for talent. That's where he came across Logic & John. And he had a kind of a little side business where he was booking shows at New England prep schools. He realized that there was an opportunity there. These schools had small budgets to book shows, but they didn't really know how. So Harrison kind of would step in and book artists. And I remember it was really the first time, this was probably pre-record deal, that we were actually making money. I remember I was getting like a three or $400 commission check, and I thought... That to me, those were super exciting times because Absolutely. then it starts becoming real. Yeah. Right. Granted, it's 300 bucks, but it was like, yo, i made money. But like, also
0: comparing that to rule and comparing mm-hmm, that to the 100%. heavy labor, you love what you're doing Correct. despite it being a slog and it's working.
1: Correct. So that, so he started booking me and I got to know him throughout that process. He would just call me for different shows, opportunities. Um, he was in college at the time and I knew, I realized he was from Long Island. I think we had just brought it up in conversation And that summer when I graduated, I was looking for help because I started feeling a little bit like, hey, I think I need some help here. I'm a little, a little bit overwhelmed. I reached out to him and I said, I was living at home with my parents at the time. I was like, you know, would you be interested in interning for me? And again, I reached out to him on Facebook, I think. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to. So I would drive to, he lived, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes from, from the town I lived in. We'd work out of his public library in his town. Um,
0: a sneaky, great place to work. Great
1: place to work. There was a conference room there. It was super quiet and we just, we just kind of park up in there all day. Um, and then we also worked out of Adelphi after I graduated. We'd go, cause I had my key cards and all this stuff. Worked. Right. So we'd go in the library at, at Adelphi. But, uh, yeah. And, and he went from intern to assistant to now he's the COO of the company. He's a major, major role. He's been there for six six years now. Damn. Yeah, that's great. So it would get. So to answer your question, it was really the two of us for the longest time. Um, you know, I I didn't want the overhead probably, and I didn't think. But I don't. I still don't believe bodies solve problems. A lot of people just try to throw bodies at things. What I mean by that is they just hire. Yeah. And I don't think that's because there's such a learning curve in this business. Especially every artist is different. Mm-hmm. And like now I have I have seven clients. Every single one of them are just different. The way they operate, the way they like to do business, the way their cadence with the manager is different. So when you bring someone on in in an artist management company, there's gonna be a six month to a year learning curve. And you it takes time to mentor people and educate people. And I I was just moving at speed and I was so laser focused. And me and I have time to train time to anything. You just got to
0: know how to do this.
1: And me and Harrison had such an incredible cadence at the time. So I didn't bring on I didn't bring on people for quite a while. Now, I think there's eight or nine of us total. Um, But we've slowly got to that point. Um, And it's been it's been exciting to that's a new challenge for me. Right now, I'm not only managing seven clients, I'm managing seven, eight employees every day. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's a lot. It's something, and I love the challenge, but, um, you know, it's something that's new for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And also one thing I want to directly specifically highlight is there is absolutely nothing wrong with taking your time around scaling your business and architecting your business because it's your business. 100%. And there is no rush whatsoever. You got to do what's right for you. And I I really respect the fact that you recognize that and have continued to develop the self-awareness to stay disciplined. So I think that's super important how you grew.
1: Yeah. And I think I was able to just block out noise. Like so many startups want to just raise money and hire. And I never did that. And I don't even know if that would have changed anything if I had raised capital and just, because I still don't believe hiring solves a lot of the problems. I don't think that, um, and we're also ooh, Matt. Artist management is a super personal business, right? It's one-on-one, and and your relationship and your cadence with that artist. Um, but yeah, so um, I look back and I think I I did it I did it the right way for me and yeah. for for my business. That's all
0: that matters. Yeah, that's huge. I, from an outside perspective, think you're doing it pretty right too. I appreciate that. When would you say was the first break for for each artist that you felt like, hey? We're really onto something outside of the four hundred dollar commission checks and everything. Is there is there a specific moment in time for both John and Logic, or is it kind of just unified? What what did that look like for you mentally?
1: Yeah, there it's funny because I get asked that a lot, I think about it a lot. I don't know if there ever really was that moment. There was later, much later. But it again, it was just a slow and steady build, like touring, right? You look at Logic in particular. It was six years, six summers in a row. He did six summer tours consecutively over six years, and the, we started. Like, if you want to even look at the journey, right? We're sitting right here at uh, your office in in Manhattan. He started that year in 2012 at SOBs, right, which is a 350 cap room. Then we went to an 800 cap room. Then we went to a 1200 cap room. Then we went to uh, 3,000 cap room. Then we did Barclays Center scale down. And then he ended up at Madison Square Garden, right? Damn. And it was this slow and steady build. And John's on the same path. Um, you know, John did that same journey as doing Jones Beach this summer amphitheater. And, but again, they both definitely had moments where I think it changed their notoriety and, and where people, they probably both became global businesses. Um, and we did the same thing in Europe. We got over there early and went back um, consistently. But Logic had a moment in 2017 with a song, we call it 1-800 song, and that definitely changed. It was a VMA performance that I think really broke that song and, and played a, a big role in the life and, and trajectory of it. And prior to that in 2016, John had a hit record, All Time Low. Um, and it, those things, all, all it does is I think it just... It, gives the artist a little bit more awareness. And then you have to do a good job at, okay, how do you change awareness into audience and fans, right? There's a difference. And I think that's what we did a really good job at. We said, okay, we're not just gonna, Like, these artists who have 10 hit records who can't sell 300 tickets. Right. So we were always interested in ways of hacking and say, okay, now that we have people's attention and awareness, what can we do to make them invested and become a fan and hopefully come to shows for the next 10 years, um, and I think we, we did a pretty good job at that.
0: Can you share an inkling of the secret sauce about how to get people to care? Just because I feel like that translates really well because I feel, as we've talked more about, more about the development of your career and mm-hmm. my career, we actually have a lot of overlap with what we do despite being in completely different industries. Right. I'm investing in early brands, hopefully before people hear about them. You're doing the exact same thing with musical artists because at the end of the day, The artist is a brand. It's their persona. It's who they've crafted. It's their art. So, how how do you get people to care? What's what's one or two key things that you feel has to either be present in the artist or just what you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's it's going to sound cliche, but it's just genuinely caring. Like an artist genuinely caring about their audience and base. And and what we did with both Logic and John, and they were willing to do it. And it's hard. It was hard as hell on them. So each each one of them at, at different stages of their albums, I think it was Logic's sophomore album, it was John's debut album, they got in tour buses and traveled the country and literally knocked on fans doors and played them the album one on one, right? And you what's the ROI of that? What's the ROI of getting in a bus in Los Angeles, taking fourteen days to, you know, drive across the country, stopping at fans' houses for a personal one on one interaction? right that's crazy and and it they both did that so it was and it was an idea that we had just internally I'm like listen I think you have to prove to people that you genuinely cuz I knew how much they cared about their fan base and their audience and they did it and and it that idea was scalable because then social media is a beautiful thing right so we documented that journey and, you know, Logic and John would then tell personal stories about that kid who they visited and their fan, what what they may have been going through in their life and when they discovered their music and how music has played a role in their life. And what it is, I, I just think it makes the artist superhuman. People sometimes forget that they're just human, yeah. right? And I think the more you remind them of that um, and the more they actually care and show that they care about the fan base, I think it, it pays off because then people become more invested in them.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, I think that's very spot on and you know it's spot on because it's working for your business absolutely i i think that the bullshit meter amongst fans is actually super high Mm -hmm. so when somebody's genuine it just is so apparent to them it's it's really important um you said 2016 all-time low pops out how did that change john's business is that Right when it be- he became a global brand, or, or what did that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean a hit record will do that, right? It'll give you it'll give you global awareness. And what's funny about that is, the journey of that song, he made that one hundred percent by himself, in his bedroom in his boxers, literally. I remember the day he sent it to me, and it came out on on a mixtape we put out, a free album, I think two years before that, or eighteen months before that, and we fought for it number one, to be on his debut album and said, hey, this is a hit record, this is the single. And you have to, or you could imagine, we're fighting a record company who said, wait a second, this song's all news. It's been out already. It had, I don't know how many millions of streams already on on Spotify and Apple. I don't know if Apple, yeah, Spotify and Apple. And we're like, no, 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 no. Because my mind, I was like, there's just much bigger audience out there. You just have to reach them. And I think it was a learning experience for the record company at the time, and we fought them tooth and nail to go with the record. And then when it worked and it ended up, you know, working at top 40 radio and became this hit record, it was just a really cool thing. Cause it's something John and I believed in going back two years. And it was, I think also, it proved our point that like, Hey, there's different audiences everywhere. You just have to get creative and reach them in different ways. When we put that song out on a mixtape on the internet and on streaming services, we didn't have the power at the time to reach 10s, 20s, 30 million people, like top 40 reaches every week. So we knew there was a big audience out there who didn't know who John was and didn't know what the song was. Right. And even if you look at the trajectory of 1-800, that came out on April 28th and it broke. It went number one at top 40 radio in November. It's like wild. The 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 journey, doesn't have to be new. No, and the journey and the lifespan that that these songs take, and even one eight hundred people look back now and it's five times platinum. And people, oh, that's a no brainer hit record. It wasn't. Right. It wasn't. Um, it's actually super risky. Very risky. The first of all, the title's a phone number,
0: and You're, the phone number has some real significance. I I was going to wait a little bit to talk about one eight hundred, but I feel like this is this is a perfect time. Sure. We're in the moment. What is the phone number?
1: Yeah. So the the phone number is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, and, and the song is kind of a journey about somebody who's in a really dark, low place and then slowly coming out of it. And there's three different people on the song and they're each telling a different part of the journey. It's Logic who kind of opens up the song in the first verse and it's Alessia Cara and it gets a little bit brighter and then Khalid and it gets really bright that they kind of made it through that dark period in their life. Um, so we just, again, it goes back to being genuine, right? And human. We just wanted to be authentic. Um, so I think I had the idea and I called Logic about it and he loved it. I was like, what if we kind of reached out and partnered with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline and we actually titled the song the phone number? And then being a little bit more educated and talking to the Lifeline, you realize that they don't have the marketing dollars and the spend to create awareness for the number. And they're, you know, they I remember I was on a conference call with them, they told me a really sad stat about how many people. Ultimately, take their own lives because they don't know there's someone they could speak to 24 um, seven that are trained professionals and could help them through whatever they're going through. So it was a cool moment, especially as the song got bigger and bigger, that we knew we were just helping more and more people. Um, you know, and again, it just came down to just trying to be genuine. Nobody was like, "Hey, if we this will be this marketing gimmick." If we na-. no, like, we just wanted to be genuine and real. If anything, it was stacking the odds of the song being successful against us. Yeah, right. One of the first lyrics is, "You know, I want to die today." that's not safe for top 40 radio
0: you're not playing that in the club
1: right and it's and not happening everything was stacked against that song um so to see what it did I think it's just a testament to again I sound like a broken record being genuine being real and being authentic right I think it only worked because it was so real yeah
0: and you came from the best place that's it and I I think it's very important and I know other people preach about it and it's 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 a shame that I even have to say that it was taking a risk to be that genuine and open mm-hmm. and talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you and logic and the entire team have been very early on making people feel okay to do that. Mm-hmm. And now fast forward to today, it's, it's a key pillar of society. What are we doing about the mental health crisis? It's a real issue. Oh yeah, It's, it's out there. And I think it's super important to put that message out and, it's amazing that that is a turning point for both of your careers because it's actually genuinely doing good for people. So Absolutely. that's awesome. Yeah. Um, rewinding a little bit around touring, touring was a separate beast for you guys. I, I know Logic in particular. I think you kind of gambled all in, like you were saying. We, we were talking before the microphone earlier, just taking dramatic risks. You funded the tour with with advance money yeah. from a record deal. Yeah, and pretty much put the money on black that this tour is going to work out. Yeah. Can you just talk like 30 seconds on what was going through both of your minds like signing this crazy check, probably the biggest check that you both were seeing with zeros and everything Mm -hmm. and then all in on this tour because you know it's important. It's going to grow the brand and it's better for the future.
1: Yeah, because I think we just had this, you know, kind of relentless belief in what we were building because we had done it together and we saw it every day grow online and on the internet and that's why... The internet can be a beautiful thing. You could just reach so many people. And we had felt, it's just intuition. We felt at the time, we're like, you know, I, I called him. I was like, dude, I think we can do a tour, like a proper tour, like 30 shows across the country. And that's why we made the decision to sign a record deal. We were going to wait and hold out, right? It's just business one on one. You build leverage,
0: yep. right? And you you had been building leverage through mixtapes. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And we put out a lot of music at the time. We put out four mixtapes together. And you know, because we both felt strongly that I think it was time, and I think we can, you know, do this tour. We said, okay, cool, let's sign. We did that, and we reinvested the advance money that we had into into the tour to you know this startup capital that it takes. We had to, you know, we rented. I rented two cars from you know Enterprise Rent a Car a uh, minivan and a Nissan Altima and that costs money when you're taking them out for 40 50 days with um,
0: the specific language in the contract to not leave the state. Yes. And you're going on a multi-state tour, so that was a gamble too. Yes, and
1: it, we didn't really have a proper team at the time. I didn't have attorneys to look over things. Like even renting a car, it just wasn't the right way to go about right. it and <laughs> you know, uh, selling merch out of garbage bags, we had to we had to buy that merchandise. And there was no Proper system, there were like it was just me. I didn't know, you know, and I'm figuring it out. I was figuring, I had no idea what I was doing, and you know, selling out, selling merch after shows out of garbage bags. And Logic would come over to the merch table, and fans would come by, and we're just shoving the cash in our pockets. We we could only take cash. We didn't have credit card machines or right. anything like that. And then we just take the cash, sit down in the green room at the end of the show, and just count it all out and say, so, okay, this is what we made. You had no, I mean, we probably lost merch. One of his buddies we at the time had in charge of the merch company had too much to drink one night he spilled a cranberry vodka all over we had these white t-shirts oh, no. and you know there's no we had no inventory and no backup you ruin those 50 shirts you're shit out of luck Yeah. and uh, yeah we were just figuring it out but we knew and believed if we invested in it it hopefully would pay off, right? We believed in what we were building and said, okay, if we, like, even the tour, and I look back now and just the absurd risk, okay, not only did we both fund it with the advance that we just got, he was an unknown act, right? Not even relatively, just super unknown. And no promoters believed in us that we'd sell out three 400-cap rooms. So they wouldn't even give us any guarantee because of the way a show works, you'll get a flat guarantee, and then if you hit overages, you'll get the back end. We were taking straight door deals, zero guarantee. We'll split the door. Whoever you bring, you'll take eighty-five percent, ninety percent of the door. Whoever you bring, and the whole, we did the whole tour like that. Wow! So let's say we didn't sell tickets or what we needed to. I mean, it would have just been upside down. Money out of your pocket. Out of your pocket, lost everything. Yeah. Scary. Yeah, but we it didn't worked. think about it. I'm being honest. Like, Again, we had this conversation off off when the microphone wasn't on. I didn't put a lot of thought into it at the time. Um, you know, I think I, w- I we were just kind of just running with it. We believed in what we were building. We saw it. Little things, right? You don't have the, we didn't have the data back then that we have now um, in terms of who's consuming his music, where it was being consumed. Uh, A lot of the streaming services didn't exist, right? When we started, there was no such thing as Spotify. Right. There's no such thing as Apple Music. It was putting out, you could just see how many people downloaded his music. That's all you knew. You didn't know kind of where it went, how often it was being listened to. There was no stream count. It was pre-SoundCloud, so it was all intuition. Crazy. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah.
0: And I mean, fast forward to today. What What's your business look like? I mean, you have, you have more than two artists now. Mm-hmm. You have an entire staff. You yeah. You have multiple companies. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. yeah. But, so, uh,
1: so the management company now seven seven clients that we manage. Um, and I just recently, a couple months back, started a joint venture uh, record label with Sony Music, which I'm super excited incredible. about. You know, it's something I think I've always wanted to do. And when I got the opportunity, it was just a no-brainer. My mentality is if you're a good manager, you're probably going to be a really good executive. Um, You know, I've had frustrations throughout my career where I didn't think the executives understood what it meant to be an artist and be a manager because it's a completely different side of the business. And, you know, I think having that knowledge and understand what artists go through and what it's like on a daily basis is just going to make you more holistic as a record executive and underst- and truly understand. And I think it'll just make you a better executive. So that was always my mentality. And um, yeah, I'm excited to build that side business now. That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm really
0: stoked. You're also physically building an office right now, your first office, yes. for better or for worse. Yeah, we've and
1: always figured out ways to sublease. I worked out of my attorney's office for two and a half years and overstayed my welcome we are in a WeWork currently, while while they're building out the office. But yeah, it'll be a, a first proper office. It'll, both companies will operate out of there, so it'll be Visionary Music Group and Visionary Records. Yeah, that's so exciting. I'm stoked, man.
0: What uh, what's in the immediate future? What what are you really looking forward to business wise?
1: Building the record company because it's a new. I always have a chip on my shoulder. It's just kind of who I am. It's it's a new challenge because I think. People can look at you and say, okay, well, you've had success as a manager. You're, you're unproven so far as an executive. Um, and I love kind of proving people wrong and I love that. So It's I think, really exciting. Yeah, that's I, what I love about. doing it too. <laughs> that's what I'm excited about. It's a, it's a whole new challenge. Um, and it's brand new. It's a couple months old. So
0: hell yeah. Before I let you go, I, I, I need to know it's, it's the one question that I asked. It's the sign up question. I prepped you. What's your life motto? What's your guiding principle that you can apply to either crossroads of your life or just looking back?
1: I don't know. I I don't really have a life motto. I'm just trying to answer the question the best I can right now. I think hard work has always been a a core foundation of, of who I am and from when I played soccer, you know, back then, I think that taught me a lot about work ethic. And it was cool because you got to see your daily return on the effort you put in because you got better every single day. You got a little bit better. I think I learned it. I, I think work ethic is a learned behavior. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I think I learned it from my parents and it's played a big role in in, in my life, in my career. It's Shout probably, out to your parents. Yes. It's probably the thing I contribute the most, if not all of this, our success to, from me to Logic to John Bellion to Harrison, I think it's the one common thing we all have is just a, you know, tireless work ethic. And I think when you just work really, really hard, good things are just going to happen. Like, I don't think we're much smarter than anybody. I don't think we're really better than anyone. I just think that we outwork most people.
0: And like you said earlier, we're all just human.
1: That's it just human
0: that's amazing where can people find you what do you want to plug
1: um let's do my instagram it's czvmg there it is there it is
0: thank you so much for doing this episode it came out great i listened the whole time that you were talking okay. and <laughs> it was an incredible episode so i really appreciate thanks for having me
1: dude thank you
0: And that's, that's what we have for episode six. That was really fun. Chris was a phenomenal guest, and he has an amazing story. Uh, I haven't heard of many potential professional soccer players going on to manage some of the larger acts in the music business, while also just really expanding into an industry uh, that was completely foreign to him just less than a decade ago. He's, he's done so much. Uh, A lot of it, he didn't even talk about it on the podcast, and I would definitely, definitely urge you to, to follow him along in his journey with everywhere that he said that you can find him on the internet. Fascinating, amazing human being. He's a friend, and I just couldn't be more excited for his success and to continue to watch him grow in everything that he does. What I like about Chris is the fact that he highlighted that he had no inroads he didn't know how to break into the music industry but he definitely had the mentality where he was just going to figure it out and he still maintains that to this day and that's what's keeping him expanding into different corners of the music business and just broadening his business and and pushing Logic's career and his artist career forward at just a different pace than a lot of people out in the game are Please, if, you, if you're having fun with the Tartar Project like I am, probably not as much fun. Hopefully we get you to that point at a later date because I'm having a lot of fun with this. Tell your friends. Give me five stars on iTunes. That's super important for me. It helps me expand my reach. Follow me on Spotify. Hit me on, on any place that you can find this podcast. Post it in your Instagram story. I'd really appreciate it. It means the world to me. And tune back in next week for episode seven. And I'll catch you then. Thank you again for listening.